Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. What was your first sales job? Was it in ad tech, media? Perhaps it goes a little further back. A paper route, Girl Guide cookies, or maybe a lemonade stand. When Jamie Lipowitz was a child, she was flipping Beanie Babies. But that was then, and this is now. She has since moved on from collectibles and into cannabis. Jamie is the founder of the High Buds Club, the premier discovery platform and social club for bud tenders and cannabis retailers in Canada. A native of suburban Toronto, Jamie studied political science in university with ambitions of becoming a lawyer. She decided against this, launching a sales career spanning everything from spa packages to Groupon-like deals to media. Jamie Lipowitz stops by to chat about her life, career, where the idea for the High Buds Club came from, and the gap it's filling in the cannabis market. We even get a very surreal story about the time she rubbed elbows with Snoop Dogg while working at Mary Jane Media. High Buds Club is Canada's first fastest growing community for bud tenders in Canada. We connect bud tenders with cannabis experiences and each other in order to learn, share, and grow and build uh, the Canadian cannabis industry. My role there entails quite a few things. Uh, I'm the founder of the business, so uh you know, got to do founder things. I am responsible for revenue, which uh, takes up a good chunk of my day. And then also for the vision of this business, I run my team um, and I make sure that everything goes according to plan. Jamie, I'm very much looking forward to our chat today, but let's go back to the beginning. Where are you from? Uh, I was born and raised in Toronto. Spent your whole life in Toronto then? Basically, yeah. I left Toronto after university and lived for in California for a few years. But for the most part, yeah, Toronto's home. So what was life like for you growing up in Toronto? What, what part of Toronto? Can we say borough? I know we don't usually use that term here, but when I talk to people who are from like the High Park area, they like to double down on the fact that it's a borough of Toronto. They, yeah, I guess I they're trying to be New Yorkish, <laughs> like Manhattan uh, or Upper East Side. Yeah. So I actually grew up in the suburbs uh, in Thornhill. Uh, and it's, you know, suburban, it's a suburban city, I guess. Um, I'd say it was like an uneventful, peaceful existence. Like, like typical suburban life where it's like, yeah. I like to say it's home of the three S's, shopping malls, schools, and subdivisions. You got it. And I would also add drive-throughs into that mix, but that's not an S. But- <laughs> that's for sure. But yeah, that's like suburban life. Uh, So I, you know, lived in the suburbs with my parents. I moved into the city after university uh, and I've been living in the city ever since. So what was keeping you busy growing up? Like what were your hobbies or your passions? So I bought and sold Beanie Babies for a good chunk of my formative years. It's interesting because my hobbies were little businesses and now I run a business, so not much has changed. So you were flipping Beanie Babies then? Yeah, Beanie Babies were big. They were real big. I started in the Beanie Baby trade. I was probably like 11. I had dealers all around the city and my grandmother would drive me around to pick up these like rare Beanie Babies and I had customers and I would buy and sell Beanie Babies. 
And my brother and I would go to trade shows and set up booths at trade shows. And uh, yeah, I sold a lot of Beanie Babies. Okay, so how did you realize that there was there was a business opportunity in there? Like, did someone get you a Beanie Baby for your birthday and then point at you and say, look, don't get that dirty. You can probably sell it for three times the amount. And then like a light bulb went off. Uh, no, I always loved them. Um, I always just like loved collecting them. And then in part of collecting them, you learn what's rare and what isn't. And so the hunt for the rare ones came into play. And then I realized that I could make money. Um, you know, so I had, Like I I was saying earlier, I had a few relationships with uh, different vendors around the city. And I think they just thought, you know, like I was an 11 or 12 year old kid, like, and just wanted to collect Beanie Babies. And I was excited about them. And so they would let me know when they were getting things in early or when shipments were coming in so that I could call or be there and like get these Beanie Babies. And then we started going to shows and I realized, yeah, that I could make some cash. So, uh, I'd say the opportunity kind of just presented itself. That's crazy because these vendors are like, Oh, this is adorable. This 11 year old loves her beanie babies. Not realizing that behind the scenes you were building an empire. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I, I don't know that I was building a beanie baby empire then, but, um, I was definitely had more money than all my friends. So that was great. (laughs) I mean, are you still into that with toys? Because something that's come across, come across me in the last couple of years is I literally heard, I can't believe I'm saying this term investment grade Lego and people are flipping Um, Legos the same way Beanie Babies were. I'm not, I'm not into collectibles in the same way, uh, unless you count handbags. But um, my brother is like obsessed with these Funko Pops and he, there's apparently quite a market for Funko Pops as well. I can concur with your brother about the Funko Pops. Like I'm not flipping them, but when there's a very unique one that comes up, like I'll give you an example. They did a limited run on Michael Keaton's Batman. 1989. And I said to my wife, I was like, you got to get that for me. You're looking for a birthday gift right there. And it's still in the box sitting on my desk. Yeah, exactly. So my brother's got, you know, tons of them like around his house in his daughter's room, like still in boxes, uh, never been touched, but definitely, definitely a collectible pristine. Did you have any influences? Like who did you look up to growing up? You know, I, it's so cliche. It really is. But I grew up in a really close family. And so I spent so much time with my grandmother that I would say, like, in my formative years, my grandmother was a huge influence of mine. I can't really, I can't really pinpoint, like, a celebrity or a person of influence, you know, that, like, really affected me growing up. I'd say that most of my influences were in my family. So what was your first formal part-time job? I know you were already wheeling and dealing the Beanie Babies, but was, was there ever a job where you were on someone else's payroll? So I got a job when I was, I think, 15 at the mall and I worked at this furniture store in, in Promenade Mall. And then I moved over when I turned 16, uh, I went and worked at Old Navy and then they transferred me to the Gap. 
So those were like my retail experiences um, in my teen years. Okay. What did you learn about yourself when you were working retail? Let's start first with selling furniture because I used to sell, I did it for a couple of months in the summer in university selling basically liquidation furniture at a Sears liquidation center. And I got to tell you, it was one of the most unique experiences of my life. Learned a lot, but it was unique. Did you find that it was also a unique experience for you or it was just a job? That one was just a job because I got all my friends jobs and so we would we would work at this store like there would always be two people on a shift and it would be like me and a girlfriend of mine every after school shift. Um, so that was just more fun. Um, and I remember they had like ridiculous furniture in there and like, you know, we're making minimum wage. I think I was making like six eighty five or something at the time. But then when I moved over to the Gap, I remember I was making seven fifty, and I thought I was like rolling in it. And that experience taught me that I was like really good with people, that I could read people and I could interpret what they needed and then give them a solution. Really? All that from the Gap? Because we had like targets. And you always had to like meet your quotas or else you didn't get shifts. And so if I wanted to be put on the schedule, I had to sell. I learned that I was really good at it if I focused and I always outperformed everyone else. And so um, that was, I'd say, not my first real sales job, but like my first real job in like interacting with the public and selling them things. That's the first job I got paid for. I guess Beanie Babies would have been the first job that I I sold at, but I didn't know that I was selling at the time. So how many Gap hoodies do you have? Or did you have at the time? Because that was that was like kind of the staple thing back then. Everyone had a Gap hoodie. Oh, now- I had an exclusive Gap wardrobe before Yeezy. That was before uh, Kanye made it cool. Do you remember when the Gap changed their logo slightly? Like it was just adjusting the typeface a little bit and the world had a bit of a meltdown. It wasn't the right look for their brand. The Gap is iconic. I mean, it seemed like it was new Coke all over again. People were all just right. like, we can't do this. And then it, well, at least it signaled to them that people were definitely passionate about the brand. I mean, when your audience is going to speak back to you that way and say, we'll continue buying from you, but you have to look this way, you fall back in line. Totally. Cause the customer is always right. <laughs> that's for sure. Oh, not necessarily at liquidation centers. I'll tell you that much, but that's, that's, fair, that's, that, fair. That, that's for another time. You were heavily steeped in business. Yet when you went to university, specifically York university, you studied politics. What attracted you to that academic discipline? I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. So I figured that was the right path to go to law school. And then when I got there, I realized uh, that the world had enough Jewish lawyers And it was not the right path for me. When did you have that moment? Was it like, was it as you finished your undergrad and you were thinking about writing the LSATs or was it like halfway through your undergrad and you're like, you know what, maybe I'll finish this up, but I'm not doing what I thought I was going to do after graduation. I'm going in a different direction. It was probably like the end of third year, second or third year. And I remember thinking like, why am I even doing this like I don't like I didn't even want I finished university but I 
I remember thinking like, this is so pointless. Like this is all theory. Um, and it just didn't capture my attention or my interest. And I thought like, you know, I started to look into the LSATs and I, and I just thought like, if I go to law school, I'm never going to be a lawyer. So why am I going to go to law school? So after graduation, what was your first job in the media and ad tech world? Took me a minute to get into the media and ad tech world because when I graduated university, we were at the height of the 2008 recession. And so I couldn't even, I couldn't even get like an unpaid internship. And so I, uh, a friend of mine at the time had gotten this job going door to door selling spa packages and I needed a job. I needed cash. And so she convinced me to try it. And it turned out that I was like pretty good at it. And so for a few years after university, I worked for this business going door to door selling spa packages. And then um, I transitioned into like a more managerial role in that company and I would go and work with the spas and salons that we were marketing for, and I would set up their promotions for them. Um, and I did that for you know a few years, and that I lived in California with that company and traveled quite a bit. And then when I moved back to Toronto, um, I guess that would have been in 2011, end of 2011, beginning of 2012. Um, I got a job at Rogers, um, like in six seconds from moving home, uh, working on a digital business of theirs called Our Deals. And Our Deals was meant to be uh, Rogers' competitor to Groupon. Um, if you remember Groupon, I don't know oh, yeah. if it still exists. I remember um, Our Deals as well, too. And so I worked on that business uh, from the day they launched it to the day they shut it down. Uh, so I think I was there a total of 15 months altogether. And then from Rogers, I was introduced to Kevin Bardis at Ideon. And that's how I moved into the content field. I want to take one step back. Yeah. Going back to your time in California, what did you learn about yourself there and how different was it doing that job in California versus doing that job selling the spa packages? And I know that you had growth and you were doing other things and more of a leadership role at the company, but how did it differ from, say, doing the job in Toronto? I learned that no matter what happened and no matter what, um, what sort of obstacles that were put in my way, I learned at that time in my life that I would always be able to provide for myself and that I could be self-sufficient. And it gave me confidence in my abilities as a salesperson to know that like I was talented and could actually like look people in the eye, close a deal and sell things. And so that time in my career was, I, I always, you know, it was a pivotal time because while the experience and the job sucked, going door to door sucks. Um, you know, I learned how to read people. I learned how to negotiate. I learned how to, how to turn a no into a yes. Um, and so I, I learned a lot of really important skills that would set me up for later in my career. But for the most part, I think that time gave me the confidence to know that no matter what was going to happen, 
I would always be able to provide for myself. And so when you landed at Rogers, this was a complete, can we say it's a complete 360 from what you were doing before? Yeah. How did I mean, that- it wasn't, it wasn't. So, you know, when I was working with the spas um, in California, part of it was coming up with the promotional packages of like what we would sell for them and, and you know, what the marketing materials looked like. I was doing something very similar at our deals, just in a different capacity. And so, you know, what, what was an in-person job became more of a phone relationship jo- job at uh, Rogers. But in essence, the, the job was the same. The platform was different. I guess then it must have been far more different than when you moved to Ideon Media because, again, it's... Oh, Ideon again, was a... Com- uh, Ideon was the biggest learning curve um, of my professional career. So you mentioned until, that- I, until I jumped into cannabis and completely <laughs> moved into a different industry. So you mentioned that the founder, Kevin Bartis, you got a chance, if I, if I'd heard you correctly, you got a chance to meet him and that's how you moved over to the company or did you apply and then meet him through the application process or the interview process? How, how did that come about? Yeah. One of my contacts at Rogers, uh, worked with Kevin and Natalie, Natalie Milne, who, uh, runs content at Ideon still. And so Kevin and Natalie knew this woman whose name is escaping me right now. And when, um, when our deals was being shut down, she offered me an introduction to Kevin and Natalie because they were looking for a sales rep. And so that's how I was connected to them. And this is your first foray working with, I guess, media agencies. Yeah. I remember Kevin saying to me in the interview, do you even know what a big box is? (laughs) And I said, yeah, I think that's the square on the right. <laughs> and, he, and he was like, yeah, you're right. And I, I remember saying to him, again, it goes back to confidence. I remember saying to him, Kevin, I don't know media. You can teach me that. But you can't teach people what I know how to do. And that's how to sell. You either can do it or you can't. That's very true. You it's like when you try to teach it, what you're doing is helping someone unlock a talent that they didn't know was already there. And if it wasn't sure. there to begin with, because sometimes people need a gentle push to get out of their shells. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I'd agree with that. Okay. But so st- if you can't do it, you can't do it. Oh, I, I agree completely. And I, I, I get, you probably got a lot of calls too from, I'd say agency people saying, Hey, I'm thinking about sales. And they kind of look at you sideways when you say it's not for everyone, but you're really starting to manage expectations and saying, look, the highs will be high. The lows will be low. There's not really a lot in between. And if you can't stick it out and push through, it's really not for you. I always tell people that there's this emotional side to it, that if you take things too personally, don't get into sales. It's just not going to work out. It will beat you down. All you hear is no continuously. No, 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 no. And then maybe out after nine, 9.9 no's, you get a yes or whatever, whatever the ratio is, but you're told no constantly. And so you know, it takes, it takes a thick skin to be able to handle it and then put the smile back on and go to the next person. Was there a period where you had to adapt to this type of selling just because you're dealing with agencies more or less? And even though they do have a say as to whether or not you're on the plan, they still have to sell it through to the client who you don't have direct access to. Whereas we look back at your previous roles, you seem to have direct access to the decision makers. There wasn't this sort of intermediary in between. 
So yes, it was definitely a learning curve in terms of like more relationship-based selling and like, you know, knowing that there were cycles and needing to be needing to talk to a planner at the right time in the cycle and, and, you know, following up and making sure you got the RFP. Um, But I actually think a lot of media sellers in Canada are a bit lazy because they only go to the only go to the agency and they never touch the client. And to that, I would say like, if you're getting money from an agency, yeah, don't go talk to the client. Like you want to keep getting money from that agency. You don't want to piss them off. But a good salesperson, if you're if you're hitting a brick wall continuously with an agency, I would go to the clients direct because zero times zero is still zero. And, you know, like you haven't told me yet, no yet. So <laughs> I'd rather wait to hear no from everybody, every stakeholder, than just leave it to one person and hope that they can sell me through. No, I agree with you. The problem, you've already said it, the problem sometimes with going around is it's a bit of a third rail, third rail topic in this industry. Yeah, you got to do it with finesse. Yes, you absolutely have to do it with finesse. I completely understand. Okay, so you started as an account executive and then you moved up to a senior AE. Did your responsibilities change much in between that? Yeah, my book of business got bigger. <laughs> <laughs> More accountability and responsibility. You got it. So when you were promoted to director of sales, I assume at this point that you've got a team that uh, is reporting into you. Maybe you're still carrying a book of business at this point. Is that correct? Yeah. So I started just, it, it, it was a really natural occurrence where I started like mentoring people under me. And I would bring over, you mentioned bringing over people from agency. Uh, I brought over three or four folks um, at the time, and I built a little team out from underneath me. And I would identify people in agency who I thought, you know, had talent and could, you know, talk to people, but also people that I thought, you know, could sell could, you know, close, uh, I could teach them to close a deal. A few people didn't work for sure, but a couple stuck and are still at Ideon today. So yeah, I built a whole team. How did you take the shift from being a player to a coach? Like, was that an easy transition for you? Cause I know a lot of people when they, they move up and they're kind of out of the, out of the bullpen or the dugout, they kind of want to get their hands dirty and help it they need to be pulled back. And it's just like, no, you're there to support the team this time. You're not there to go out actually on the field and swing for the ball. I am somebody who likes to master things. And so when I came into Audion, I didn't know a thing about media. I didn't know, uh, you know, I didn't even know what a, a big box was really. And in, you know, in under three years, I think it was just over two, I went from not knowing anything to building a $2 million book of business, not having a book of business and then building this book of business. And it got boring. It got, um, I needed a new challenge. And so helping others became interesting to me because I had proven to myself, like, I can do this job. I can do this job within my sleep. And so um, it was really just a natural progression. And Kevin was, I I always say uh, to anybody who cares, Kevin is the best boss uh, that I have ever had. Like I will never have a boss better than Kevin Bardis. And Kevin was really good at 
like getting out of my way and letting me do what I thought I needed to do because inevitably it helped build his business. So you'd say there's definitely a lot of trust coming from him. Oh yeah. You need a leader who trusts you. If you don't have a leader who trusts you, get out. It's you're never going to win. Yeah. I've said that as well. And there've been times in my career where I haven't had that trust above me and it took me a little bit longer to get out than, uh, I, I probably overstayed my welcome or stayed longer than I should have for my own good. Yeah, no, for sure. But I mean, we also built that trust. You know, I, I, I came into Ideon, like I said, I didn't know anything. I had never sold media before and I worked my ass off and I proved that I wanted to learn that I was capable and I could succeed. And so it's not like I went into the position, you know, telling them all the great things that I knew how to do. And then I was a complete flop, which, you know, unfortunately I've seen more often than not. Um, versus I came in honest and I said, I don't know how to do this, but I know how to do this. I want to learn. I want to grow. And, you know, there were, there was two years of really grinding where, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I was out with clients, like, you know, leaving my house, you know, 7am getting back home, 10pm. Um, out with clients. I was, you know, always in office. I was never at my desk. And so I think he saw that I was hungry and that I was capable and that also the results came. And so we built that trust. I think everybody has to build trust with their leaders. I don't think it's given ever. I always think it should be earned. Okay. So looking back when you started at ID on media, I assume your peers were more experienced within the media sphere. Did that motivate you a little bit more going, okay, you know what? I know that I've got the sales chops to be here, but there are some gaps I have to plug. So I'm, it's going to motivate me even more to learn and master what digital media is and being able to communicate that to buyers and planners. Oh yeah. I walked into a boys club and I thought to myself, <laughs> I'm more talented than all of you. How is this even possible? how are you beating me? And it was really humbling. And that's why I put my head down and I got to work because I had to prove yes to yes to them, but to myself, like, I'm just as good as you. I saw them making all of this money. And I was just like, I can do that. I know I can do that. So you left Ideon for Mary Jane Media. Take yeah. us through what, take us through what Mary Jane Media is, and uh, what did you do there as their director of sales? Mary Jane is a Snoop Dogg owned uh, media publication. They're based in the U.S. and they, you know, are a publisher on cannabis content. So they create uh, a lot of various content on various platforms. So in terms of industry, uh, yes, it is cannabis, but it was very similar to what I had been doing at Ideon, which was in the branded content realm. At the time that I went to Mary Jane, they were the agency of record for Canopy Growth. And so uh, during my time there, we launched LBS, which is leased by Snoop, Snoop's uh, now defunct cannabis brand. Um, and I supported the Canopy team on, you know, a few different marketing initiatives. So I think my title was director of sales, but I didn't really sell very much when I was there. I worked mostly on brand initiatives. 
during my time there, it became very clear to me what the cannabis industry was going to need in order for it to be built and to grow. And uh, High Buds Club, which is the project that I'm working on now, was born out of my experience at Mary Jane. So when Mary Jane Media approached you and you started with the company, was cannabis fully legal in Canada yet? Or was this that sort of you remember that one or two year period leading up to legalization or a year and a half where everyone was getting ready, but they were trying very hard to stay within whatever the parameters of the law yeah. was at that point. Like, and I'm not even just talking about selling cannabis. And like, I'm literally talking about media companies and what they could say, what they couldn't say. This article has to be age gated. This totally. one doesn't cause we're only talking about CBD. So you had to, you had to go through all those nuances, didn't you prior to uh, legalization? Yeah. So when I was at Ideon, my team sold um, like several pieces of branded content through to Canopy Growth. And this is before legalization, but legalization was announced. So this was probably May 2018 and legalization happened October 2018. And so we had produced these pieces of content for Canopy for a few of their brands on a few of our platforms and as a part of that, I went to Montreal to a conference with the Canopy Growth team. And I was at a dinner uh, in Montreal and I was introduced to Ted Chung, who at the time was the CEO and co-founder of Mary Jane. And we were just, you know, sitting across from each other at a table and we started talking. And when uh, I, you know, shared my experience. He asked what I, what I did. And I, sh I shared my job and my experience. He really zoned in on my work experience because it was very relevant to what he thought he needed for Mary Jane. And we ended up, you know, that night just sitting, chatting for, you know, 90 minutes or something just became my buddy. And that was that. But he lit this fire underneath me where I was like, oh, maybe I could go work in the cannabis industry. Like that would be really interesting. And then fast forward, you know, three months later, somebody from his team reaches out to me. Legalization is happening. It's, you know, maybe four weeks away at this point, six weeks away, whatever it was. And uh, somebody from his team reached out to me to interview for this role. And it was, you know, a really organic thing. I met him. Um, we chatted. He told me his vision for what he thought the industry was going to be. And, you know, I just knew that I wanted to take the ride. I knew that it was it was too exciting for me not to jump into. So was there a lot to legally navigate, though, when you started at Mary Jane Media? Because I have to imagine that there was this massive crash course in what you can and cannot say and oh, yeah. what you can and can't do, which probably yeah. set you up pretty nicely for the High Buds Club, just totally. given that there's all those legal nuances. So I always joke, we used to spend hours in these meetings with Snoop's lawyer um, around creative stuff. And like, I always joke now, like, thank God those were not my billable hours because I learned so much in that nine months that I was there. Everything that I learned at that time set me up for what I would create with High Buds Club. Did you ever get a chance to meet the dog father? I have, yes. Oh, what's he like in person? He's just so chill. <laughs> like, um, like everything you see on TV is him. Like he's so chill, but I was, uh, a, a good friend of mine is is very very tight with Snoop, and he took me 
to uh, a concert of his, uh, this probably again, 2019. So definitely pre-COVID. And we're standing side stage at this concert and Snoop's playing and his bodyguard or whoever he is walks over to me and hands me a bag of blunts and a lighter. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just like, here you go. Like light one, smoke one. And I just was like, what world am I in? Like, where (laughs) am I? Um, But it's, it's so, it's such an iconic memory of mine for sure. Yeah. You, you can't replicate that. No, never. (laughs) Oh God. So the high buds club bringing this full circle, where did the original idea come from? Uh, So I was with the canopy growth team in California And we were taking them, three of them, on a tour around L.A. uh, to show them the different dispensaries. And this was before uh, retail had opened up in Canada. This is February of 2019. And retail in Canada opened up April of 2019 in Ontario, rather. It opened April of 2019. And I was in a dispensary in Venice Beach. And I was looking around and I decided I wanted to buy a vape pen and I picked one based on the way it looked. I liked, I liked the packaging. I liked the brand. It looked cool and just interesting. And I said to the bud tender, I'll take that one. And she basically says to me, don't buy that one, buy this one instead. It's better. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Why? And she's like, well, the oil tastes better, the battery lasts longer, and it's the same price. So I just think it's a better buy. And I'm like, yeah, dope. Like, I'll take that one. I don't, you're, you're the expert. I don't know anything. And so I buy this vape pen um, and I leave and I pull it out of the package. And it just was like, the pen looked disgusting. Like it was like not made for me. It was not, it was, it was, the brand was heavy hitters. It's an American brand. And it basically looked like Ed Hardy had like thrown up on a weed pen. And it was just like not my aesthetic, but I had bought it. And I just had this aha moment of like, holy shit, like the bud tender is everything. The bud tender is going to dictate what gets sold in a store based on their preferences. And I've done quite a bit of work in beauty during my time at Ideon. And it's very, very similar. Dispensaries to me are very, very similar to the Sephora experience. And in Sephora, what happens is you have so many categories. You have, you know, lipsticks, you have eyeshadows, you have skin, you have skincare, you have hair care, you have fragrance, you know, like there's, there's so many categories. And then under the categories, you have so many products and subcategories, you know, you think about skin, you have like foundation, concealer, you have a tint, you have a sunscreen, you have a moisturizer, like you have so many subcategories underneath the category and whatever the beauty artist says goes. So when somebody walks into a Sephora, not everybody, but a good chunk of people will say, I want a concealer. I want a red lipstick. I want, you know, a eyeshadow palette, whatever it is, a bronzer. And the beauty artist will show you one, two, three of their favorite options. And you'll buy 
usually one of the three that they present to you. And so it's the same in cannabis retail. Go, customers walk into the dispensary. We are living in a world where consumers know nothing about the product category. This is the first time, you know, with the exception of, you know, a few U.S. states, this is the first time in history that cannabis is a consumer packaged good that is branded and sold this way. And consumers don't know a whole lot about the category anyway. So they walk in and they say, I'm interested in a vape pen. I'm interested in an edible. I want to feel this. What do you recommend? And 72% of all purchase decisions in retail are based upon the bud tender's recommendation. And I just happened to see that before anybody else did. And when I saw that the bud tender was going to be king, you know, we think about influence, right? Like what is an influencer today, a content creator, whatever you want to call them, they're influencers because they make us, they don't make us, but they help us to make purchase decisions and show us our options, right? And a bud tender is no different. They are the ultimate influencer in cannabis. And so I took my experience at Ideon uh, at one point in our Ideon journey, in my Ideon journey, we sold WebMD. We had WebMD as a um, as a uh, as a publisher, and Chris Connolly had GSK, and he would sell GSK the most niche audiences at these crazy CPMs. You know, like you're looking for a pulmonary cardiologist, and there's maybe you know five thousand in Canada or whatever it is. And, you know, he would sell them, you know, ads at like three, four or five, six hundred dollars CPMs, these like wild, crazy CPMs, because that was the audience that GSK was looking for. And so at the time, I mean, the business has certainly evolved, but at the time I knew a few core things. I knew that it was inevitable that bud tenders would become valuable and I knew that cannabis brands would pay to reach them. And so that was my initial hypothesis for High Buds Club was let's create a community for bud tenders so that cannabis brands will have an audience to speak to. So if bud tenders want to get in touch with you and become part of a club, how do they go about doing it? Like plug the website. So they'll go online to highbudsclub.com. They'll fill out an application to join when they meet our criteria for membership. They're extended an invite into our digital community where they will be welcomed into Canada's largest digital community for bud tenders. We have over 4,000 members across the country. We're growing rapidly and you are, I like to say that we are exclusively inclusive. So we are exclusive to bud tenders. It is for bud tenders only. But if you are a bud tender, you will be welcomed with open arms. Jamie, this has been a fantastic chat. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, the campaign you are most proud of. Oh, wow. The ca- I mean, that's a hard one. Um, I really loved the campaign we did last year uh, for Pride with Flower. Nothing to hide. Your favorite movie? Pretty Woman. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? Barbara Streisand. If Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? 
She wouldn't shut up. Your favorite book? Uh, my favorite book. I wouldn't say that it is my favorite book, but I would say the book that has impacted my life the most is When Breath Becomes Air. Your favorite song? That's an impossible question. The best advice you have ever received? The golden rule is the who has the gold makes the rules. I like that one. Classic. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would it be? It'll all work out. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I would be doing exactly what, I'd, what I'm doing now. I'd be an entrepreneur. Jamie, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.